We're going through Acts. What's happening here in Acts 8? If you were here with us last week, this man Stephen preached the gospel and was killed for it. And um, these are the, this is what happens to the church immediately after that. He's the first Christian martyr um, since Jesus. He's the first person to die for preaching and teaching the gospel, for trusting in Jesus and all that kind of stuff. Acts 8, 1 through 8 are the first things that happen afterwards. And what we're going to talk about tonight is the topic of personal evangelism, right? When I say that, I kind of ask a lot of people, what do you think when you heal, when you hear those words, evangelism, personal evangelism? And I suspect you all feel the same way I feel. This is kind of, these are the overwhelming consensus to that question. What are just the feelings that come in? It's kind of creepy, right? Uh, the believers that I ask are all feel guilty because none of us do it, right? And then people feel unprepared to do it. What does it mean? I don't, I don't know how to even have that conversation. And so I want us to begin to kind of enter into a conversation of what it's about, um, what we can learn from Acts, which is the story of the church going from 12 people to thousands of people. Acts 1.8, again, is the, it is the outline for the book. It is the purpose statement of the book. It is Jesus saying, I'll send my spirit upon you and you will be witnesses to Jerusalem, where they were in Acts 1, to Judea, then to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's the book of Acts. It is this. It's a story of the church going go global. So here's what happens after the first guy is killed for preaching Christ. Acts 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider one of the things we're most uncomfortable with, uh, most confused about, maybe even offended by. I pray that you'd be with us, dear Lord, that you become sweet to us, that we would find that your grace um, is a comfort to our souls and we would find that it is contagious in our lives and in the lives of others. Dear Lord, we pray that we would become salt and light on campus, that we would become the aroma of Christ to the place that we live in, and we would become that out of love and joy and not out of guilt and confusion. In your name we pray, amen. Um, when I talk up here, I try to be who I am when I'm not up here, if that makes sense. Uh, and so, in that spirit, some of y'all figured this out. I think Ryan Reich, uh, is Ryan, I don't think Ryan's here tonight. He's the first person to figure this out. I just have one sermon. I don't know if y'all, I like, I use different words, but this outline's always the same every week. Uh, and it's simply this, and I, I I've been in ministry for, you know, a whopping four years now, and I've been looking for another sermon, like, all right, I've got to come up with some new material. This is going to get old. And uh, listening to Sinclair Ferguson and men like him, I feel pretty comfortable with my one sermon. And so far I haven't persuaded there's a need to change it. 
And the sermon is just this. This is, this is RUF every week. I hope this doesn't cause you to not come back because you're like, oh, I know I'm going to hear there. Something's wrong with the world. It's wrong several different ways, so each week I talk about different wrong things. Um, that's not the comedy element tonight. But, um, it's wrong because, and it's our fault, we did it. We're trying to fix it, but we can't, and Jesus does. That's RUF every single week. I hope you come back. I think it's a beautiful story, and I think it can be told a thousand different ways. Um, but I preach that every week. And the reason why is because this is all what I think needs to happen in all of our lives. What I really hope happens is you actually despair of yourself. You despair of your plan. You despair of your abilities and your own estimation of yourself. And you despair of your heart. And that you run to, cross, run to the cross and you see that Jesus is full of grace. And that he's full of steadfast, unending love. I want you to see every week that sin is both deeper inside of you and also more personal pervasive in all of you into every aspect of who you are that it's darker and it goes much further into who you are than, who you, than what you think and at the same time in light of that the gospel is richer it's more beautiful it's more lasting God is more patient and more loving and more gracious than you can imagine that we can all articulate the gospel but there are, we have not mined the depths of God's grace yet we're far from it and the reason why I think that's the heart of everything we're going to talk about is because I want us to begin to love Jesus not because we feel guilty for not loving him and so we fake it, but I want there to be a growing love in the hearts of his people at the core of who you are so that things like obedience and things like holiness and things like growing in the Christ-likeness you begin to pursue because you actually love him. You don't pursue those things. And, and what I don't want you to do is pursue those things in order to assuage your own guilt. In other words, I mean, a simple picture of it is like, I want to do things for Elizabeth because I love her, not because I feel guilty for not loving her. I want you all to grow into Christ-likeness because you love Jesus, not because you feel guilty for not loving Jesus, if that makes sense. And there's a way of doing ministry out there that gets much better short-term results and it's straight from the Pharisee playbook, and it's this. It's to shame people into religious activity, to get them to see you're not justified in the way you justify yourself is by checking off enough boxes. And so their obsession and their thoughts and what they're consumed with is not the work of Christ on their behalf, which is what I hope you see in RUF, but rather what they're consumed with is, am I doing enough? Do I have it right? Have I figured it all out? Am I checking off the right boxes? Am I doing enough? In other words, they're actually thinking about themselves even in their religious activity. No, I want Jesus to become beautiful to you so that he takes a larger and larger place in your heart and he pushes out all the other things that you love. And so every week I'm going to say life is broken. It's broken a thousand different ways. So we're not going to run out of material. It's our fault we can't fix it, and he does. And it costs him deeply, and he loves to do it. And the reason I begin that way is because when we talk about evangelism, especially the prospect of, right, talking to someone face-to-face, a friend or a peer, about who Jesus is. is and it's something we feel guilty about because we don't do and we're confused about, right? The reason I say all that is because there's a fundamental principle that's operating in and under and behind and around everything we're going to say. We're going to actually talk about this for a couple of weeks. But you've got to hold this principle underneath everything that we're doing because if you don't, 
you'll really never understand what I'm saying, and actually you'll misuse what I'm saying and turn it into, again, a legalistic practice of trying to do something religious so you don't feel bad about yourself. Evangel- Here's the principle. Evangelism is not a technique. It's not something you have to be trained in. It's something you do, actually, naturally, all the time. Y'all evangelize all day today. Because all it's doing is telling people around you about something you like. That's all evangelism is. Is telling the people around you about something you like. Nobody had to train you in how to recommend your favorite movie. You know how to do that. You do it naturally because you like it. And so the people around you, you think, hey, you should watch this. You would like it too. Here's why. Nobody had to train you how to teach someone to like your favorite. To, uh, no one had to train you to teach someone how to like your favorite band. You know how to recommend your favorite music, right? People in here are going to CrossFit because I love CrossFit. Seriously. Nobody had to teach me how to tell people how much I like it. You are evangelizing all day today for things you like. Actually, in some sense, all forms of communication are kind of persuasion to your, your way of thinking. I mean, last week we talked about how Joseph Scola loves Chipotle. And like, oh my gosh, Chipotle, that sounds good. I think I'll have some, right? Some people actually wanted Chipotle after that. The reason I remind y'all, kind of going back to the purpose, uh, remind you about the purpose of my sermons is, is this. If evangelism is just telling people around you about something you like, the key to evangelism is liking Jesus. So I'm going to preach every week in a way that draws your heart to Jesus. The key to evangelism is not a technique. It's not a scripted conversation. Those things can be helpful in a limited number of contexts. But if you love him, you'll tell people about him. Because guess what? All day today, you told people about things you loved. And with that in mind, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider evangelism, what it looks like, talk about some ways we learn about it as it takes place in the early church, especially here tonight in these first eight verses. And I want to make, I want to address kind of objections to evangelism for a couple minutes before we go into the text. Um, Whether you believe in Jesus, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a seeker, um, or you don't believe in Jesus at all, you might have objection or discomfort with this notion of evangelism. Because you you might bristle at it because it feels like it's like imperialism or something. You're, you know, Christians are all about converting people. Christians are all about kind of pushing their views on other people. And I understand why you feel that way. And certainly there are ways in which Christians have been coercive and abusive, certainly, and and manipulative and even deceitful in the way that they've tried to draw people into this conversion experience. But I want to say a few things. And the first one is this. If you have a problem with this notion of trying to convince other people of thinking a certain way, there's a problem with that thought process. In other words, like, what, if, what offends me about Christianity is they try to get people to think they're a certain way. I had a conversation with a, a good friend this summer who's not a believer, and he, that's what he said. He said, I don't think Christians should try to convert people to the way they think. I think everybody should leave everybody alone to believe what they want. Now, what was he doing? He was telling me I should think like him. So, to kind of reject Christianity on those grounds of like, you shouldn't try to get people the way to think the way you think. You're actually trying to get people to think the way you think. All I'm saying is, again, at root, everybody's an evangelist. 
everybody's trying to get, the people who oppose evangelism, right? Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, those people are incredible evangelists. They're trying to get everybody to think the way they think, right? Even in their opposition of evangelism, they're evangelizing. They're saying, don't let Christians get you to think the way they think. You should think the way we think. My point is simply, we're actually all doing that. Secondly, the Bible, not only does it not condone manipulation and coercion, Paul speaks very directly against it in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4.2, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. They're not tricking anybody. They're not being deceitful. They're not baiting and switching with the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I've decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. I, I didn't come proclaiming to you. That, uh, I'm sorry. That's what he, he just says like, here it is. My speech, this is what he says in verse 4, my speech and my message, they're not impossible words or wisdom. They were just simple. You know, the evangelism is just holding out Christ. And the Bible speaks against the bait and switch. And lastly, the last objection, real briefly, this notion that, well, when Christians think about this conversion evangelism thing, they treat people like projects, right? And I'll say this. People are only projects if your gospel is a gospel of works and not a gospel of grace. People are only projects if your gospel is a gospel of works and not a gospel of grace. Because if it's grace that you've tasted deeply of and it is sweet to you, then you love to bring people to your Savior. The things you love, you love to bring people to. You don't treat them like projects. You rejoice in the prospect of them coming to love the things you love. But if your gospel is a gospel of works, and you believe that you're secured by your activities, you actually don't care about the people themselves. You just care about checking off your evangelism box. And that's how people become projects. The only projects if your gospel is a gospel of works and not of grace. With that in mind, I want to jump into the text for a couple of minutes and learn, see what we learn from what happens in these first moments after the first Christian martyr. And what I want us to see tonight is when evangelism is supposed to occur, or when slash where, who's supposed to do it and what it looks like. When and where it's supposed to occur, the context for it. Who's supposed to do it? The people that are doing it. And then lastly, what it actually kind of looks like. And we're going to do more in the following weeks. I'm not going to answer all of our questions we have about it, and I hope to eventually. So last week we read about this guy Stephen preached. He got killed for it. And then look what happens. Saul, who would actually later get converted, approved of his uh, execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Things are hitting a fever pitch. It's intense in Jerusalem at this time. Saul's getting the synagogues organized against Christians. They're being systematically persecuted, arrested, and killed. This is a bad moment. If you remember in Acts 5, we saw earlier when there was all the Christian, or not all the Christian, all the uh, local leaders gathered and considered Paul's, uh, excuse me, Peter's preaching. And this one leader got up and they were, they were trying to figure out ways to stop Peter. And this older, wiser leader got up and he said, listen, y'all, his name is Gamaliel. He said, listen, don't worry about this. Just admonish them and send them on their way. Don't make a scene because here's what's going to happen because it always happens. And he lists these other historical instances. He said, the leader's going to, create a, going to create a scandal. He's going to get killed for it, and then the movement will dissipate. He said, just don't worry about this Christian thing. Let Peter do what he's going to do. 
what always happens with cult leaders, what always happens with cult leaders in the United States, this is what Gamaliel is saying, is the leader will eventually get killed and things will dissipate. The people will disperse. What happens right here is he's half right, right? He's actually half right. Stephen gets killed and people scatter. But something, something different happened when they scattered. They went and preached the gospel everywhere. The gospel went out. It grew. It got bigger. God's people scattered and started preaching everywhere. Again, Acts 1.8 is, is, is the outline for the book. It's, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the gospel going to Samaria. This is literally one of those kind of mile markers that Acts 1.8 tells us about. The gospel is of such a nature and such a power that when the world and the powers of the world array against it, it grows. When it receives persecution, when it is costly to love and know Jesus, the gospel gets stronger. They started, I mean, again, how do you pitch that idea? <laughs> You're doing evangelism, right? At this point in time, oh yeah, Jesus is great. He forgives you for your sins. You should come and trust in him and be baptized, right? But by the way, literally the moment after you get baptized, everybody's kind of against you politically and religiously and you might die right? It's not your best, like, evangelism technique. Like, once you make this decision, you're kind of the enemy of the state and you're the enemy of the religious authorities, right? More and more people come to faith when it gets actually more and more costly to do it. Nothing else operates like that. The only reason this operates this way is actually because it's the true, it's the Holy Spirit pressing the reality and the sweetness of the gospel deep into people's hearts. What happened in China in 1949 is the Communist Revolution uh, took over China, pushed out all the missionaries. The church has grown at a faster rate in China in the last 40 years than it ever has. It's now 40 times the size it was at that time. When it became illegal to be a Christian there, the church exploded. Nothing else in the world operates this way. The, our, we all have stories of something we like or something we do, and then all of a sudden it gets costly or uncomfortable or inconvenient to be involved with it, and so we don't do it anymore. Because that's what you do when things get uncomfortable and costly and inconvenient. You stop doing them. We'll hang on to things for a little while because we still like them and we're willing to kind of undergo some cost, you know, and some inconvenience, but everything kind of reaches a point where it's like, okay, well, I'm not committed to it that way. This is the opposite. The worse it gets... For Christians, the more it grows. And the reason why is because suffering for the gospel drives us deeper into Jesus and actually conforms us and makes us more like Jesus. Nothing else operates that way. And so what, this is what it means for us. <clears throat> it means we've got to start, we've got to stop treating conversation about Jesus with kid gloves. We've got to stop thinking that it's, it's a product for sale that I don't know how to sell because it makes people uncomfortable, and so I'm going to guard it, I don't want to, or at least try to make it more fashionable. I'm not saying that what we shouldn't do, I'm not, here's what I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't work to make the gospel comprehensible and compelling. The Bible, guess what? God doesn't speak Hebrew or Greek. I don't know if y'all knew that. The Bible, its existence itself, is God committed to making the gospel and his love for us comprehensible? He put it into language and images we understood, right? You absolutely should do that. 
This is what I am getting after. Are you afraid of the gospel? Are you afraid of the name of Jesus? Because you don't have to be. I I mean, I I really get the fear that y'all have. I have it too. When we go to Athens and go into the university, like, it's hard and it's awkward and I'm fearful. And there's a faulty way of thinking out there that says, listen, don't, don't offend people by bringing up the name of Jesus or the gospel. And that faulty way of thinking can leak into ministry and teaches that ministry is a bait and switch. Hey, kind of look over here, kind of do this stuff that we're doing, enter into a conversation with us that seems to be about something else, right? And while you think it's about this, once I've gained your confidence, here's my hidden agenda, right? It's exactly what Paul preaches against. And here's my point, y'all. You just don't have to be afraid. I understand your fear. I have your fear too. This is God showing us why we don't have to be afraid. When people were getting killed for loving Jesus, the church grew. You know, one of the questions to consider is, what would it look like if Christians, the people who knew Jesus on campus, began to talk about him, began to share him with others, began to be known as a people who are full of grace and who love their king? What if it happened? Not just RUF, but we all, all of God's people on campus did that. History in the Bible tells us exactly what we can expect. We already know the results. Some people will be hostile and some people will come to faith. That'll, that's what will happen. You don't have to fear. You already know what will happen. But I understand your fear. But God's here saying, listen, you don't need the right set of circumstances to do this. And in fact, and this is really true, the, bigger, the biggest barrier to people coming to faith is comfort, our own personal sense of comfort. It's not hostility. We all think that the, oh, the barrier to evangelism is other people's hostility. That's not what's stopping the gospel. The stopping what's holding the gospel back in a sense is our sense of comfort. Don't worry about hostility. God doesn't need the circumstances to be the right, the right set of circumstances for you to talk about the kingdom. So where, when does the gospel proclamation take place? Anywhere, anytime. Who is it that's involved? Right? Who are the parties involved? Notice in the text, it tells us, it's kind of in, there's an interesting detail there. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions, all of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles were still in Jerusalem. In verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The people who are going out and preaching the gospel in this context are not the professional Christians. They're not the officers in the church. They're not the apostles. They're the non-professionals, the non-apostles. It's not just the pastors and it's not just the missionaries. And here it's, it's explicit. Hey, every, I mean, there's, again, the detail kind of stands out. Hey, people went everywhere and started talking about the gospel, except for, you know who didn't? The professional gospel talker about her people, the apostles, right? He's showing us it's the job of the whole of God's people. It's all of God's people. It's not just the apostles, the professionals, the missionaries. Evangelism is just not for professionals. And in many ways, and I think you can see this, the care and the gospel love and even the gospel conversation of the laity, 
the non-professionals, can actually, in a lot of ways, be actually more powerful and have a more authentic ring to it, right? Because one of like the not-as-fun parts of my job is that there's a little part of being a pastor that causes people to kind of discount what you say because that's what you have to say because you get paid to say it, right? And there's a little part of getting discounted because of that, and I understand that. I'm the pastor guy, so there's an expectation that I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you Jesus questions and talk to you about Jesus, right? But when non-professionals, when just God's people share Jesus, it might not be as articulate. You might be more articulate. It might not be as smooth. You might not know the Greek or the Hebrew. It might not be as well-crafted. But it'll probably have more authenticity to it because it's just one person telling another person about what they like. And that's just, that's just kind of sweet and powerful. It's the job of all of God's people to make his name known, to declare the good news, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection life that we have in Jesus, and we have it by grace. We have it by unmerited favor. It's just not the job of just the clerics in the church. In another area of this notion of evangelism, that's the job of all of God's people. Another way this kind of, another area this speaks to is this. It speaks to thinking of evangelism as something you do on the short term, volunteering, or in a program, right? We find a program, we volunteer for a few hours, or we go on a short-term mission trip, right? And that's where we do our evangelism, you know? We compartmentalize our Jesus talk to these ministry moments, these formal ministry events, because we have to do it. It's not really us. We would never do it in the places where we actually live with our friends, but this is a picture of God's people just going throughout all of the Middle East and talking about what they like. It wasn't a short-term mission trip. It wasn't a few hours a week. It was just telling people about what they love. Sinclair Ferguson said this earlier this summer when uh, First Press sent out a short-term missions team. I thought about trying to do this in a Scottish accent, but I would bur- butcher it. Um, my Scottish always tends into, goes into British, and then I feel stupid. But... Uh, you know how, like, it, for those of you who've been there, like, oh, man, when he's like, gets into those real powerful exhortations <laughs> and he has that rich Scottish brogue and, like, I don't know. If God doesn't speak Hebrew or Greek, he might be Scottish. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but Ferguson said this. He says, don't you dare go and do something on your short-term mission trip that you have no intention of doing when you come back here. We are making what we love known to the people around us. It's not for professionals. It's not for ministry events. It's not for trips. It's not for volunteer hours. Making what you care about, especially if what you care about is life-giving, you know, that's just human. It's just normal. The gospel is for any place, any time. The gospel is for all of God's people. Lastly, what does it look like then? What did Philip do? We get a picture of one individual doing it. He went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what he was saying. I don't know what that is. We opening that? I don't know. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, so Philip goes into Samaria. The crowds start paying attention to what was being said by Philip. 
when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. In other words, his gospel proclamation involves two elements, saying things and doing things. They listened to what he said and saw what he did. What he did was unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed were healed. And there was great joy in the city. And we talked about miracles several weeks ago, so I'm not going to talk about the miraculous, the miraculous aspect of this. The miracles demonstrate the power and the validity of the gospel. But this is what I want us to see about them this week. They are the gospel enacted. They heard the gospel proclaimed. They're also seeing the gospel lived out among God's people. They're not just illustrations. They actually are the gospel healing people. The gospel is that a good king comes and sacrifices himself and pours himself out for the sake of the people who created their own mess, and he brings healing and care to those people. What Philip was doing was he was saying the gospel, and he was doing the gospel. The community of God's people are called, we're actually called his body. We are his hands and his feet in this world because we're his primary tools for bringing healing to the world. When Philip comes to Samaria, which by the way, if you're familiar with like parable, uh, parable of Good Samaritan, thing like that, Samarians are some of the most hated people in the Middle East, the most despised. They had blended all kinds of worships. They basically offended everyone. Nobody liked them. So Philip goes to the most irritable people, the most irritating people, the most despicable people, and you're always a force of healing. He's a force of service and of generosity and renewal. He takes care of the neediness in the community while he's preaching the gospel. He brings the gospel both in word but also in deed. He's the hands and the feet of Christ. He doesn't just make the gospel audible. He also makes it visible. And then the city responds. I mean, verse 8 is beautiful. There was joy in the city. There's joy in the city that Christians came said the gospel and did the gospel. I mean, I wonder if that's possible at USC. For there to be joy at USC because Christians did the gospel and said the gospel. Because they saw God's compassion in action. They see the heart of the gospel is going into and relieving brokenness. They see the transformed lives of God's people. They see that God's people who have been delivered from spiritual and psychological bondage themselves, delivered from our bondage to selfishness, right? They see that the gospel is changing someone like Philip, and all of a sudden, he becomes someone who goes to great pains to love and to care for and heal the needs of other people. Now, here's, here's the hardest question I was kind of thinking about getting ready for this. What are the needs here in the place where you all live? That's a hard question. Right, especially because we're all comfortable, wealthy Americans. And yes, if you're a lower middle class, you're a comfortable, wealthy American. Travel around the world, you'll see. Right? And so sometimes we think it's hard to see the needs here. What would it look like for Christians to go into places of brokenness on this campus and be the gospel visible? Right? I mean, one of the things I constantly think about is there's a lot of loneliness here. The reason Halloween party is going to be amazing, but the reason we have Halloween party and tailgates, the reason we get ice cream afterwards, <coughs> is just because we want to be a community of hospitality. Nothing more than that. A place where people who are lonely can be with people and actually be cared for and loved by other people in the simple ways of simply providing food and company. That's all we're doing. 
Those, those events are for anybody. They're just Christians trying to be hospitable. Y'all, the campus is full of lonely people. This room is actually full of lonely people. I mean, just get coffee, get lunch with somebody, and listen to their story. I mean, we're all dying for someone to listen to our story. I, I sit in the Christian coffee shop culture, because in the South, all coffee shop cultures are Christian coffee shop cultures. I kind of bounce around between all of them here, and I see myself in all of what's going on in a lot of these coffee shops. There's a lot of advice being given and not a lot of listening happening, man. Just listen to people. Just spend time with the people that... Just spend time with people and ask them their story and listen. I mean, just go into their loneliness. That's one of the needs here. One of the reasons we're doing international students is because we're doing his international. Where's Megan? Talk to Megan if you want to go to his international. It's just because we saw... Oh, Someone kind of showed us, hey, there's a really, really ridiculously lonely portion of the student body everybody ignores. So we're just going to eat lunch with them. I don't don't know what happens after that. I don't know. Go and eat lunch with them and see what happens. But that's why we're doing it. Right? Y'all live in this place actually more so than I do. There are deep needs here. Look around you with a heart and with eyes looking for that need. What do you see? And here's the reason... Here's the reason why we struggle with seeing the needs. It's actually not because they're not there. Because like I said, every sermon is just a different way about how the world's broken and Jesus fixed it. There's all kinds of brokenness in this campus. There's all kinds of brokenness in our lives, in this room. The reason we don't see it is because the idea of walking into a place and looking to the interests of others is utterly counterintuitive. And it's only by drinking deeply of the grace of the gospel that we can do it. It's only in the secure grasp of the Father's love for us that we can stop worrying about me, right? Who is for me? Who's talking to me? Who's listening to me? Who's taking care of me? What about me, right? That's how we walk into every social context, right? For the Christian, brothers and sisters, the answer is the Father is, so you don't have to worry about it anymore. He's for you. He's with you. He's listening to you. You don't have to worry about it anymore. So when you stop worrying about me, you can walk into a place and see the needs of others. And you'll bring the gospel not just in word and deed. We're going to talk more about evangelism in a couple of weeks. Um, And if you're hearing me, I know that word is daunting. The prospect of doing it is daunting. You feel like you don't know what the first step is. Maybe you don't even feel like you know what you would say. That's okay. The Lord will actually give you words. Um, We're going to talk talk about it more. But if you're kind of looking for the, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Right? Remember our fundamental principle. You tell people about the things you love. You do it all the time. I do it all the time. The key to evangelism is not a technique that you master. It's really growing in your understanding of your sin and your selfishness so that you can grow in your understanding of the freeness and the bigness and the security and the steadfastness of God's saving grace so that you grow in love for Him The key to evangelism is loving Jesus. Let's pray.